You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week will be calling time on drinking in Russia. There's a sort of slightly, often slightly fatalistic attitude in, in Russia to this sort of thing. The Lib Dems discussed drug policy. He was the first Tory of the, the committee to come down on the side of reform. He examined all the issues and, and came down on the side of progressive reform. But before that, Stephen Jin talks comic book villains. Comic book heroes and villains have been part of growing up for millions of kids around the world. Now these children have become adults, but many of them still love comics. In recent years, the characters they know and love have also become more mainstream, with many comics being made into successful films. But in comics, mental ill health is often portrayed as the reason that the supervillains are so twisted, and this does not represent the true nature of these conditions. Because of this, a group of comic-loving doctors have made it their mission to use these characters to educate comic book fans about what mental illness is really like. Broadcast thoughts are made up of Dr Eric Bender, Dr Proveen Kabam and Dr Vasilis Pozios. And earlier this week I talked to them about one comic in particular, Batman. Vasilis Pozios. One of the characters who has been uh, depicted as being uh, quote-unquote psychotic is the Joker, but... In over 70 years of comic book stories, you'd be hard-pressed to find evidence of actual psychosis being depicted in the comic books. And what he actually displays more of are uh, psychopathic traits, uh, being callous and uncaring. And that's really best exemplified uh, by Heath Ledger's um, performance in The Dark Knight from 2008. And do you think that psychiatric problems are particularly badly portrayed in comics, or is it across media in general? Well, this is uh, Praveen Kambam. I I wouldn't say that they're badly portrayed in media, but there's definitely room for improvement here. There is frequently inaccuracies in terms of the actual lingo and terms, but also other potentially more damaging things, such as depicting someone who is schizophrenic as always very dangerous, This sort of stuff will happen across media, and frequently there's a mixing of concepts as well. So someone that would have a a mental illness that uh, would preclude or typically we wouldn't see certain other symptoms, they're depicted having both of those. So the problem is clear, but how do you address it? The group appeared at Comic-Con, the massive San Diego annual comic convention that draws over 100,000 attendees. They found that amongst the fans there was an appetite to understand mental illness. Eric Bender. To give you an example, Stephen, we, at one lecture where we were talking about Batman having PTSD or not, at the end of the talk, we had a great question. Well, if Batman doesn't have post-traumatic stress disorder, is it better to say that he has schizophrenia because he has this personality of Bruce Wayne and he has this personality of Batman? So that was a prime example of how we could use this popular media, Batman, to correct a misperception. So I was able to say, you know, it's a good question because a lot of times in the media, the word schizophrenia is used to refer to someone who has quote unquote split personality. And I was able to say that's actually not correct. Schizophrenia is a psychotic illness. Psychotic meaning there's a break from reality. Someone may be experiencing delusions or hallucinations or disorganized behavior and thinking. And it really was able to make sense now to this audience after being able to talk about these characters. So that what you've, your experience is that there is an appetite to find out about sort of these things, you know, how these things are done correctly. It's just a matter of getting through to people 
using the right examples. You know, mental health is something that has been taboo for a while, and being able to talk about it in these terms helps us educate the public. And also, we can stay within our ethical guidelines. As psychiatrists, we are not supposed to ethically talk about people we have not evaluated. And we obviously cannot evaluate fictional characters, but we can use them as a way to really engage with audiences who love these characters and love these stories and know these stories. And then we can tell them about the mental health behind it and correct things, like using the term psycho when they're actually referring to psychotic, which can mean something completely different, or explaining what PTSD means, explaining what psychopathic means. Now, in the latest of our public health features in the run-up to the UN conference, Sean Walker, the Independence Moscow correspondent, writes about alcohol in Russia. And he joins me on the line now. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Sean. No problem. Now, you mention a few examples in your feature, but can you paint for our listeners a picture of Russia's drinking culture? How pervasive is it? When you look at the statistics for consumption of alcohol uh, per person, uh, if you look at sort of various studies, and you can see that, that Russia is, Russia usually comes out in the top few countries. Uh, mm. And when I talk to uh, people here uh, about that, and, you know, even, even though Russia was fifth, you know, the, the next sort of 10 or 15 countries below Russia weren't, weren't sort of significantly lower. They were yeah. maybe 10 or 15% lower. And I sort of said to them, well, you know, this seems strange to me because when I look around me, uh, you know, I'm very well aware that there's a big drinking problem in, in the UK, for example, but I just don't see people drinking to the same level uh, in the UK that I do in Moscow. You know, you, I don't go to the airport for an 8am flight and see uh, half the departure lounge sort of having a few shots of whiskey before getting on the plane mm. at seven in the morning. Uh, and I don't see people kind of drinking cans of Alco Pops at, at 10 in the morning. And I don't see businessmen uh, sort of necking shots of vodka with their lunch. And, you know, the response to that is that, first of all, uh, it's quite possible that the figures that we that people come up with for Russia uh, are not correct, that, pe- that there's so much uh, both illegal alcohol in the sense of uh, vodkas that are properly made, that are made kind of in the factories, but then don't go through the the proper customs and taxations process so that they may not be they may not come up in figures yep. and also uh homemade alcohol uh which is much more prevalent in sort of rural areas and among poorer people and the second thing that people said was that actually among most of the population and and certainly in the bigger cities um and in the sort of emerging middle class you know that the average sort of say middle class muscovite doesn't necessarily drink more than the average middle-class Londoner or Parisian, um, but that there is a certain level of population, which which one of the people that I spoke to put at around 20%, which really drinks sort of four or five times the amount of the average. Uh, and and those, are the, those are the really problem people. Those are the people where we're seeing the, the health consequences and who are pushing that average up. Yeah. We talk about binging culture in the UK, but there's a bigger culture of that in Russia, I understand. There is, yeah. There's, there's, a, there's even there's a particular word for it in Russian, which is a zapoy. Most people's idea of a binge is that, you know, you go out on a Friday or a Saturday evening and, and you may have a few too many drinks and you kind of come home and you're maybe sick or you wake up and you have a headache. 
but uh, Zapoy is sort of a is, a is a kind of a different beast altogether. It's sort of effectively individual withdrawing themselves from from the civilized world for you know a certain period of time. It could be two days, could be three days, could even be a week, mm. uh, and they just uh, sort of drink themselves permanently into a stupor during that time. I remember a few years ago when I was in in Krasnoyarsk, which is a town in Siberia. A middle-aged woman there was sort of telling me about her husband and she you know she would even say things like oh well he won't be able to do that next week because he'll be on Zapoy next week <laughs> so it's, it's so that's clearly a, a sort of very very dangerous and uh, an unhealthy way to drink absolutely um in your article there's a frankly astonishing figure from martin mckee that 40 percent of deaths um amongst working age russian men could be attributed to alcohol is there concern about that amongst people in Russia as well as the government? Well, I think that's that's an interesting question. I mean, yeah, it certainly is an astonishing factor. And, and I would also uh, reiterate that uh, that figure of 40 percent, uh, it's specifically dangerous drinking, which he defines as either zapoy, that binge drinking, mm-hmm. or the drinking of sort of surrogate alcohol, such as uh, perfumes and, and all sorts of other horrible things that contain ethanol that are not actually meant for drinking. Yeah. So, I mean, that figure, we're not even talking about, you know, chronic liver disease. Um, um, and I think in terms, of, in terms of what people think about it, I think most Russians would admit that there's a, a major alcohol problem in the country. But there's a sort of slightly, often slightly fatalistic attitude in, in Russia to this sort of thing, as is the case with, with the huge levels of smoking, with drug use, with HIV AIDS. The fact that people recognize that there is a problem doesn't necessarily translate into, into any sort of sweeping action or, or kind of public pressure and, yeah. and so on. Despite perhaps that lack of public pressure, uh, the government is doing things to try and tackle this. Um, Beer is now considered alcohol, no longer bread. There's changes in the laws about uh, the sale of alcohol. Have those laws gone through easily? Was there, you know, was there a big opposition in in government or amongst the populace about them? This is, a, this is one of those situations uh, which kind of happens in a lot of areas in Russia uh, where you're, ne- you're never quite sure what the motivation for these things are. Right. As, as an analogy, I've just been writing today about uh, the crackdown on illegal casinos in, in Moscow. And, and someone was saying to me today, you know, it's, it's difficult to tell, is this actually a really concerted effort to crack down on gambling? Or is it simply a kind of power game between other people who would like to be making money from gambling, right. asserting their, their territory? And I think and you have a similar thing with, with beer. So we, we've, had this, we've had all these beer laws come in and we've had lots of people saying, you know, this is exactly what Russia needs. It's ridiculous that beer isn't classified as an alcohol. And then I was talking to one market analyst who said, well, you know, yes, maybe it is a maybe it is a good idea, but of course, this is this is all brought in because of the vodka lobby. This has nothing to do with health. This is just the vodka lobby is worried about beer. So, you know, if you want to take a very cynical look at it, according to him, there are sort of very very strong faction in Parliament that's uh, kind of uh, linked to to vodka companies, which is of course a, a, an enormous business in Russia. You were earlier saying that you were taking the cynical line in this, but you don't sound like you hold out a great deal of hope of the government tackling drinking culture. Do you think that there's any light at the end of the tunnel? Perhaps I do have a somewhat um, pessimistic view. I think 
Um, but I think when you do look at some of these more isolated areas, which is, is still where, you know, the majority of, of Russians live, 140 million people in Russia and yeah. only 10 million of them are in Moscow. And even as, even as close somewhere, uh, for example, as a city called Tver, which is about uh, 150 miles north of Moscow, uh, population of half a million. And I was there a couple of months ago and... And we were in a suburb there, and it was just an extraordinarily grim, post-Soviet, bleak urban landscape. And I was talking to this guy, and, and, and he was sort of a, very quietly looked at me and said, you know, look, look around, look at this place. Can you imagine living here? And can you imagine not being needed by anybody? Uh, can you imagine what's that, what, that, what that's like? And I didn't really know what to say to him. And it was this, this sort of quite poignant moment where you sort of, I did look around. And it, it really was incredibly depressing. Mm. The, the social reasons why people drink in the same way that the social reasons why people take drugs. In these huge spaces of Russia where it's you know, very dark, very cold, very bleak. There's not necessarily that many prospects. Things may really have been better under the Soviet Union. Um, there's really no economic prospects anymore. Yeah. And I think... When you look at some of these places, you begin to think, well, yes, of course, the government needs to do more to restrict access, to teach people about the dangers of drinking and, and so on and so forth. And, and that's perhaps something they could do better and perhaps something that will show results. But I, I have to feel slightly pessimistic when I see just how ingrained the drinking culture is and just how depressing some of these places are. Um, you can sort of begin to understand why people turn to drink and you begin to worry and, and wonder sort of exactly what what needs to be done, what you could do to stop people drinking. Well, Sean, thank you very much for filling us in a little bit more on what's going on in Russia. Thank you. On the 18th of September, at their annual conference, the Lib Dems are going to debate a motion on drug policy. The pros and cons of prohibition um, for drugs have been extensively covered in the BMJ uh, and you can find all that online. But to talk to me about the possibility of a change in law, I'm joined by Ewan Hoyle, who is the main author of that motion. Hi, Ewan. Hi there. It's not the first time that um, the Libs Debs have debated this, is it? No, it isn't. Um, I think we we tend to kind of come back round to uh, the issue maybe kind of eight, every eight or nine years, um, and and certainly I I wanted to uh, prepare a motion that could certainly be framed as as tough on drugs rather than rather than being um, soft on drugs. Um, I think perhaps we've had a a position that could be seen as tolerant of of drug use in the past. Um, rather than really getting to the crux of the matter, which is uh, trying to reduce the harm that, that drugs can cause to society, to individuals and, and the communities they live in. Mm. Now, in your personal view that you've written for the BMJ, which is available online, you talk about uh, the influence that the tabloids have had on drug policy in the past. Um, with everything we've been seeing going on at the moment, do you think there's perhaps a chance that particularly the Daily Mail's view on on drug use might might have less of an influence this time round? I'm not sure. Certainly with the, obviously the sun and the news of the world and, and, and that kind of stable, uh, you can certainly see the, the government being having having a, a kind of uh, the upper hand uh, where perhaps the that the sun and the news of the world might have had the upper hand in the past and uh, the government could tell them what to do rather than the other way around. 
but I'm I'm not sure what how the the Daily Mail might respond to this this drugs policy motion. I mean, certainly, um, with my my efforts to frame the issue in a lot more kind of uh, tough on drugs way, um, there are messages that the the Daily Mail could pick up from that. How far do you think policy has been influenced by them in the past? Um, could it not be that you know this is the government trying to reflect the sort of Middle England ground um, mm-hmm. instead? Whenever I, I talk to to people with kind of influence within the party or even local councillors, they always ask me, uh, "How do we sell this to the Daily Mail? How do we sell this to the Sun?" And they they want it to be explained in a couple of sentences. Uh, where perhaps that's not really real, realistic. Um, so there is an awful lot of reluctance with uh, politicians even going anywhere near this issue. Certainly there has been in the past. Certainly the, the Times has come out with uh, uh, an editorial uh, fairly recently, which has called very strongly for uh, a kind of full review of what we're doing on drugs policy. Are you confident that uh, this motion will be passed? I'm certainly confident that we'll get through the Liberal Democrat um, conference. I, I do see Liberal Democrats as basically kind of held together by their compassion. And I think people who look at the issue of, of drug use in that way almost always come down on the side of doing something different. Mm. Though it's not quite as simple as that if uh, the Lib Dems are still in a coalition with the Conservative Party, who uh, have been traditionally much more in favour of prohibition and much more in favour of being tough on crime and things like that. I mean, especially as we've seen with what's going on with the riots. So what do you think will happen if the motion is passed and it does become Lib Dem policy. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think um, there is a, a real opportunity for change at the moment. Um, I mean, David Cameron was a member of the Home Affairs Select Committee in 2002 uh, that looked in, in quite great depth into uh, kind of drug regulation and prohibition, etc. And he was the first Tory of the the committee to come down on the side of reform. He examined all the issues and and came down on the side of progressive reform. So I think to have him as the Prime Minister, it's the best chance this has got. Um, It's interesting you mentioned the riots. If you're going to declare a war on gangs, I think the best way to fight that war is to completely undermine the gangs by taking away the source of their funding. If the Liberal Democrats can somehow persuade David Cameron that it's a lot better to fight smart than it is to fight tough, um, then we might actually be able to make some progress on undermining these kind of corrupting influences within these communities, making the other opportunities that these uh, kids might have a lot more attractive Mm. in productive terms. Um, He doesn't seem to be listening to Lib Dem voices about sentencing, for example. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's any more likely that he'll listen about tackling the root cause of problems? Um, I'm I'm not sure. I'm hopeful that he will. Um, certainly, the fact that he's thought rationally and come round and come down on the the right side of uh, drug policy issues in the past. Uh, so, if I, if I can manage to persuade Liberal Democrats that this is an issue of great importance that could be very helpful in balancing the nation's books for one and also improving the, the, the chances of, of young people growing up in, in deprived communities then um, hopefully uh, that can have some traction but we <laughs> I guess we'll have to wait and see yep
Ewan's piece is available to read, as I said, online and in the BMJ this week. So uh, go there if you want to find out any more about it. Ewan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Duncan. That's all for this week. Next week, we're copying the print version of the BMJ and taking a summer holiday. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more from the world of medicine. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.